Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, May 31st. 2016, and I'm your host, Ariel Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. Our special guest this evening is Dr. Stephen Farmer, a world-renowned author, teacher, shamanic practitioner, and soul healer. He's the author of several best-selling books, the most recent of which is Healing Ancestral Karma, Free Yourself from Unhealthy Family Patterns. In addition, Dr. Farmer is also a retired licensed psychotherapist and former college professor, a Reiki master, and an ordained minister in the Circle of Sacred Earth Church. He also has several delightful books for children to learn about their animal spirit guides. In addition to workshops on earth magic, shamanism, and earth-centered spirituality, Dr. Farmer also offers private consultations for shamanic soul healing and intuitive earth magic and power animal readings by phone as well as in person. His website is www.earthmagic.net. At the top of the show, it's the Starseed News with Anastasia, bringing topics of interest to Starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. We'd like to thank Vanya and Tammy for hosting the switchboard this evening for any listeners, listeners that may have a question or comment for our guest. If you'd like to chat with like-minded people, we have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and we always appreciate Tammy's dedication and help with our forum. You can download any show in our archives on iTunes or right from the Blog Talk Radio episode page using the cloud with an arrow icon. We'd appreciate your support of our show, and you can do that by clicking follow on our page here at Blog Talk, and you'll get our weekly show notices. The toll-free number for StarseedHotline.com is 888-881-0881. The Stage 1 Starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. Remote healing sessions for people and pets are also available with Tammy. If you have a birthday coming up, you don't want to miss out on your 10 hours of power. You can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. And then if you want the Stage 2 session to interpret that chart, please order it at least two or three months ahead of time to make sure you get it in before your 10 hours since we do have a waiting list. So first this evening, I'd like to introduce Anastasia with her fascinating Starseed News. <laughs> Good evening, Ariel. Good evening, Starseed hey. listeners. Man, have I missed everybody. It's oh, great to be too. back together. Yeah, well, it's we're back in the saddle, and I'm very happy to be here with you. And uh, the sunspot activity, by the way, is very, very low. There's no current threat for strong flares, so everything's good in that department. But there have been some new studies that Earth's magnetic field is changing. You know, we had some stories about this in the last couple of months, so I had to pass this along. And as anybody who ever uses a compass might uh, realize, 
that we get accustomed to our compass needle steadily pointing north. And a lot of people out there think that Earth's magnetic field is very constant, but it is not. Now, researchers have long known that changes are afoot, and they know that the North Magnetic Pole routinely moves as much as 40 kilometers a year, causing compass needles to drift over time. Now, also, the global magnetic field has weakened 10% since the 19th century. Now, a new study by the European Space Agency's constellation of swarm satellites reveals that changes may be happening even faster than anyone has previously thought. Now, data from SWARM, which was combined with observations from the CHAMP and Orsted satellites, show clearly that the field has weakened by about 3.5% at high latitudes over North America, while it has strengthened about 2% over Asia. Now, the region where the field is at its weakest, the South Atlantic anomaly, has moved steadily westward and weakened further by about 2%. These changes have occurred over a relatively brief period between 1999 and mid this year. Now, Swarm is a trio of satellites that's equipped with vector magnometers capable of sensing Earth's magnetic field all the way from orbital altitudes down to the edge of our planet's core. The constellation is expected to continue operations at least until next year and possibly beyond. So stay tuned for updates. They're finding out stuff with this satellite swarm that's doing some investigation on the magnetic field. Well, scientists are now saying that an ice age is probably ending on Mars. Now, previous Martian climate models have suggested that orbital changes could lead to ice ages happening on Mars, and that's obviously when ice would cover a majority of the planet. But now, researchers are saying that they have found evidence of ice ages on Mars, and they now say that Mars is now emerging from an ice age, a finding that could shed light on the past and future climates of both Mars and Earth. They say that the orbit of Mars undergoes changes that greatly affect how much sunlight reaches the planet's surface, which, of course, naturally affects the climate. They say that uh, similar orbital variations are known to happen here on Earth as well. So think about it. Mars might be coming out of an ice age. Mm. Well, the monarch butterfly population, they say, is in jeopardy after a Mexican storm that occurred in March. There was a severe a winter storm that hit Mexico uh, on March 8th and 9th, and they said that it was rain, sleet, and snow that uh, froze butterflies to death, and they froze them oh. to the trees. Yeah, isn't oh. that sad? Now, you oh. know, they overwinter in Mexico, and a lot of people go south to see these wonderful, beautiful butterflies in their uh, abundance because they gather there by the millions. Well, they, they're just saying now that the populations of the monarchs are greatly reduced. They're attributing this to the storm. They say that uh, they're just expecting plummeting numbers of monarchs. Now, uh, um, an organization called Monarch Watch described the storm that affected nine colonies in Mexico, nine colonies of these butterflies, as being unprecedented. So that's really a shame. You know, Mexico, in these climates where the butterflies migrate to, they go there because it's warm. Uh, that does not normally get ice and snow. And if you'll recall, in the last few months, we've talked about uh, first-time snowstorms uh, in the southern latitudes of the world. This was one of those that happened and caught the monarchs off guard. And uh, so, anyway, if you see one, 
in your area, give it a blessing. We love our monarchs, and uh, anyway, there is a diminishment in the numbers this year. Mother Nature being what it is, we can certainly hope that it's going to recover. You know, there are many cycles, and she has her ways. But in Russia, well, here's a locust story for you. (laughs) A state of emergency has been declared in southern Russia after a huge swarm of locusts spread over 70,000 hectares and has devastated crops. They said it's a near-apocalyptic scene that millions of these insects have caused drivers to swerve to avoid them, and the farmers are really tearing their hair out. And that's not really funny. It's If you've ever seen locusts in great numbers, it's a sobering thing. Now, officials are saying that at least 10% of Russia's southern farmland has been destroyed, and they've used aircraft to try to disrupt the insects. They're buzzing them with airplanes. Uh, Farmers have even started fires to stop the insects, and these locusts can eat their own body weight in food every single day. So that's pretty serious. I guess they need some seagulls. You know, that happened in Utah, and they they got seagulls to come and eat the locusts. But in any event, strange happenings. We have a diminishment of one species and then uh, an uh, abundance of others that are causing some damage. Well, in Texas... Um, severe floods hit just very recently, and it's prompted uh, regional prison authorities to evacuate thousands of their inmates because they were anticipating a deluge. In one prison, the flooding already caused a blackout. It led to a mass brawl between inmates and prison guards. Ever wonder what would happen without electricity? There it is. So Texas prison authorities evacuated yesterday as many as 2,600 inmates from two prisons that were located near the rain-swollen Brazos River, and they were citing security concerns. And we've had some earthquakes uh, since you've been gone. Only in the last few days am I going to report because several weeks' worth would take all night. But we had a magnitude 5.7 earthquake that struck New Zealand just today, and a 5.3 magnitude injured 28 people in Algeria. Um, And that happened uh, uh, Sunday. We had a 5.2 earthquake that hit Norseman, Western Australia. It's the biggest quake in six years, and experts were claiming, um, even if it might sound sensational, they were saying that the uh, earthquakes that shook the gold fields in Western Australia had the strength of an underground atomic bomb. The first one was a 4.9 magnitude, and then there was a 5.2, and the last one was a 3.2. And uh, why they would say it was that strong on a 5.2, obviously I think they were referring to the largest magnitude quake, it may have had to do with the fact of, of the depth at which this occurred. But anyway, as far as I know, no injuries were reported from that. But in Italy, we also had an earthquake. We had three, actually, one right after the other, in a little town called Umbria, Italy. It was uh, 4.1 on the Richter scale. Italian people just freaked. Apparently, there was a lot of panic, and they even closed the schools. Uh, So that was going on there. And in northern Taiwan, we had a 6.1 earthquake. That happened just today. Uh, preliminary magnitude was 6.1 in Taiwan. There have been no casualties or damage that were reported immediately uh, up to the time that I gathered the news for tonight. And in, in the who knows what's up department, I want to share this with you. I don't know what this is all about. 
But on the 7th of June, just a week away, FEMA is going to hold a massive drill to prepare for a 9.0 Cascadia subduction zone earthquake and tsunami. So on the 7th, FEMA is going to conduct this large-scale drill that has been named Cascadia Rising and that uh, 50 counties uh, plus major cities, even tribal nations, state and federal agencies, uh, private sector businesses, and non-governmental organizations across three states, Washington, Oregon, and Idaho, are going to be participating in this drill. Now, the primary, uh, primary scenario of all of these participants is going to be focusing on what will, be, um, what will happen uh, if there should be a 9.0 earthquake along this Cascadia subduction zone and one that would be followed by a giant tsunami. They say that could displace up to a million people from northern California to southern Canada. Now, in addition to that operation, U.S. Northern Command will be holding five other exercises simultaneously. According to the final draft of the Cascadia Rising Drill Plan, those five exercises are entitled Ardent Sentry 2016, Vigilant Guard, Special Focus Exercise, Turbo Challenge, and Joint Logistics Over the Shore. Army has kind of <laughs> we fun, all understand wild, that crazy names, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, that's going on, and that's in our what's up with that department because who knows what's up with that. Well, um, for years and years and years and years, oh my, since before the sun was born, <laughs> I have always had a gripe about acetaminophen usage uh, because it really is. Uh, very dangerous to a person's liver and uh, has long been, and that, by the way, that is sold under the brand name of Tylenol. Perhaps you recognize that. It really is a pretty dangerous little over-the-counter drug and has caused a lot of people actually to die from using it. Well, now they've discovered that drugs that feature acetaminophen, such as Tylenol, for instance, might be good at helping with aches and pains, but they are finding that uh, these drugs make people less sensitive to the pain or suffering of others. Hmm? What? Yeah. Well, there's this new study in which researchers from Ohio State University have found. I don't know who funded this study, but this is what it found. Individuals that take painkillers that have acetaminophen in them, which is like Tylenol or you know, sometimes Sudafed and Vicks and hundreds of other products has a, have acetaminophen in them. Anyway, people who take these products are less likely to empathize with other people's pain than those who did not take acetaminophen. In other words, even though they don't know what exactly acetaminophen does to the body to cause this reaction in people, they say that the results have important implications for everyday life that can naturally be concerning because in our society, we all need to have more empathy, not less. They say that roughly 52 million adults in the United States use some kind of medicine featuring acetaminophen every week. 52 million people. And the findings of this are not really that surprising in, uh, in lieu of a 2004 study that showed that part of the brain uh, that's activated when someone is experiencing pain is the same part of the brain that's activated when they try to empathize with another person's pain. So the region of the brain in which we uh, feel pain is also a region in which we have empathy for someone else's pain. 
Hmm. So interesting. Just thought I'd pass that along. So we have 52 million people taking this substance every week. And we definitely, if you follow social trends, social news and such, we definitely see a decrease in the amount of empathy that's being shared among people. That may not be all of it, but it certainly is, might be some of it. If we can even trust the research. Hmm? Yeah. Yeah. Well, here is a really fascinating story just for us, Starseed. Uh, British archaeologists have presented the first results of their underwater excavations in the Hellenic cities of Canopus and Thonis Heraklion, which sank into the Mediterranean Sea somewhere around the 8th century. This is according to Nature magazine. Now, why is this so interesting to Starseed? Well, scientists are calling these cities the Egyptian Atlantises. Yep, they are. Now, these two cities were uh, two major port cities that existed in the Nile Delta in the 5th century B.C. And they were founded by Greek and Macedonian colonists during the 26th dynasty of Egyptian pharaohs. Around uh, 7 to 800 A.D., these old, old cities mysteriously submerged under the Mediterranean. And they were lost for centuries, for millennia before a team of British and French archaeologists began their large-scale excavations. Now, they've been using advanced instruments, and they've discovered thousands of artifacts, including hundreds of statues, gold and silver ornaments, along with, oh, almost a thousand anchors and 69 ships, most of them dating back to the 6th and century, excuse me, 6th to 2nd centuries before Christ. After 15 years of excavation, scientists still don't know why the city sank. Um, Many are attributing this to an earthquake that happened in 796 A.D. that destroyed Alexandria's gigantic lighthouse. But they just don't know. Now, there's only 5% of these two what they call ancient Atlantises that have been excavated. So time will tell what exactly they're going to find. But they're calling them Atlantis, two Atlantises. Hmm. But such fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. Well, um, a year or two ago, you will all recall, excuse me, <clears throat> little horse, um, you'll recall that we talked about uh, incandescent light bulbs being uh, passed over for um, the um, fluorescent bulbs. And um, since the uh, European Union restricted sales of the traditional incandescent light bulbs, people have been complaining. They don't like their energy-efficient replacements. In fact, they're not popular at all. Well, scientists in the United States believe that they've come up with a solution which would see a comeback of incandescent bulbs. Researchers at MIT have shown that by surrounding the filament with a special crystal structure, crystal, mind you, crystal structure inside the glass bulb, they can bounce back the energy, which is usually lost in heat, and that still allows the light to come through the glass. Now, they are referring to their little technique as recycling light because the energy, which would usually escape into the air, is redirected back into the filament where it can create new light. It's recycling energy that would otherwise be wasted. That's really cool. I love that, yeah. Isn't that wonderful? And also that would get us away from um, these mercury lamps that really are extremely hazardous, not just for us, but for the environment as well. So that's really cool. 
recycling life. That's that's so metaphysically. So what a concept! Great. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Well, um, passing along in the mad scientist department, I'm going to share this with you. I thought this was really quite important. You know, genetically modified humans. We talk about genetically modified food. Well, what about genetically modified humans? Um, you know, just a few years ago, that would have seemed far out, but uh, it's actually what some scientists have in store for humanity in the very near future. Uh, a woman, a doctor, a British scientist from the Francis Crick Institute, received the go-ahead from the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority earlier this year. Now, who would, uh, the Human uh, Fertilization and Embryology Authority? Just think about that for a minute. How arrogant! How arrogant can we be? Anyway, yeah, this agency gave this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, this agency gave this uh, doctor from the Francis Crick Institute the go-ahead to genetically modify human embryos. Now, this doctor, or is it mad scientist, will use a gene editing technique on embryos that have been donated by consenting patients who are undergoing fertility treatment. And the article went on to say and describe what kinds of genetic modifications might occur. So hold on, hold on, hold on, because that is in the works. That's in the works. Well, I think a lot of starseeds love their kitties. I know I love kitties. I love dogs. We all love animals. But, you know, cats can be really cute. And who hasn't had a cat that makes the cutest little meow? And when you work with them a long time and they've been with you a long time and you're very receptive to them and they become very receptive to you, and you know you could just swear that they're trying to talk. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? They've come up with a cat collar that turns meows into words. Now, mind you, this was uh, created by the Temptations Company or the people that makes Temptations cat treats. But nevertheless, you can see this online if you want to check it out. And this story came from the New Zealand Herald. Um, <laughs> have you ever wondered what your cat's trying to say to you? Well, this bizarre new invention, if you get one, you can now hear all about your little pet's innermost thoughts. It's called the Temptations Catterbox, and it's the world's first talking cat collar. And it does. It turns meows into words and phrases, including, who are you, no, and no, and no, and uh, other things. Actually, they put a couple of swear words in there, which I, I don't know why they would do that, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the, the device records each meow, squeak, and purr, which are fed through a unique uh, say this, meow-gorithm. Thank you. That's what they call it, a meow-gorithm. And uh, if the system detects a sound that matches one of the preset words, the word will play through a microphone in the cat's collar. Well, you know, it's kind of a gimmick because really it's just a computer that's got certain meows and they attach certain words to it. And, yeah, it it's not really all that authentic, but cute. So you can check that out on the Internet. Now, what we really need in this world are people with evolved consciousness that can really connect with animals and really, really tell you what they're saying. In fact, wouldn't it be lovely to live in a world where we are all so in tune that we know what the animals are saying to us, as I'm sure many of you out there can do with your beloved little, I'm not going to call them pets, they're little friends. Um, when we're in tune, we already know we don't need a computer to do it for us. But 
things are getting weirder and weirder, and that is one of <laughs> <Yeah>. the things. <laughs> it's called a Temptations Catterbox. So there you go. And that's it for tonight's news. I'm going to set you loose to have this wonderful guest and have fun tonight and learn lots of wonderful stuff about shamanism. It's really good to be back. I missed all of you. So looking forward to next week with the Starseed News. Thank you, Ariel. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Anastasia. You do such a wonderful job, and I get a lot of comments and compliments on the Starseed News. So thank you for the work that you do. It's my pleasure. Okay, well, I am going to bring Lavendar on right now, and um, I'm going to put you back on mute, Anastasia. And let me get your mic open, Lavendar. You there, Lavendar? I'm here. Okay, and let me just uh, scroll down here. And uh, there there you are. Dr. Stephen Farmer is with us tonight on the switchboard. Good evening, Dr. Farmer. Uh, This is Ariel. Yes, and uh, Lavendar is going to hello. Lavendar is going to start us off this evening, and we are just so excited about having you on the show. So, Lavendar, take well, it away. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, Stephen Farmer, I have really enjoyed reading your book, Healing Ancestral well, Karma: Free Yourself from Unhealthy Family Patterns. This is a book that I wish I had read twenty years ago. I wish. Uh, someone had sat down and, and explained to me about ancestral bloodlines then, and then I wouldn't have had to go through so much um, trauma, <laughs> as you might say. So welcome to our show, and why don't you start by telling us a little bit about uh, your successful practice and how you left it and, and became a spiritual teacher talking about ancestral karma. Well, uh, thank you, Lavendora. Thank you for having me on the show, too. Uh, it's you know, it's a long story, as you might imagine, but I'll try to keep it fairly brief. It just really is, um, really was just called to me. I had sampled as a therapist, uh, psychotherapist, um, oh gosh, an evolution that took place over a number of years in terms of understanding and developing, I, I, you would say, my own spiritual practice and my own spiritual philosophy and beliefs as a psychotherapist. Um, I had a very successful practice as a therapist, and uh, in the, somewhere in there, I would I started sampling different religious and spiritual uh, groups. Uh, I would I spent four years going to the Church of Religious Science, and it was a wonderful experience. And then it was like time to move on. And then it was uh, a group called the Emissaries of Divine Light, and that was a little different take on spirituality. A lot about love and acceptance and surrender and staying in tune and. You know, it really was a very, very heart-centered uh, type of approach. And then I went, uh, <laughs> I found a group up in Vancouver that was, a, I'd say, in considerable contrast to the emissaries. It was called Xanthyros, and it was this crazy, uh, wild, just really brought out a certain wildness. And I uh, did about four years. I'd travel up to Vancouver and do workshops and such. And it really kind of cracked me open, I guess you would say, it would be one thing. Anyway, then somewhere along the line, I'd say about 22, 23 years ago, um, I discovered shamanism. You know, I'd seen the word and I'd seen, to the best of my understanding, what shamanism was. But I really didn't know what it was exactly. I just knew that it was a, an ancient healing methodology. And a friend of mine said, hey, you ought to do this two-day course that is offered by the Foundation for Shamanic Studies. 
And Michael Harner at that time was teaching it. And he is the man I, I think is responsible really for bringing shamanism into contemporary culture. And it was a two-day course, and, you know, nobody becomes a shaman just by going to a workshop or, or several workshops. That's not the point. It's not an ambition. It's a calling. But I'll tell you one thing, um, <laughs> Lavender, I, I shot out of there after two days of this, and I went, I am home. You know, give me more. Give me more. So I took a lot of uh, different kinds of trainings and different uh, modalities, different kinds of shamanism and such, and then... Um, really found that this was, this spoke to me at a, at a really core level. And the aim of shamanism in a, you know, 10 words or less is to really heal at the, at the spiritual level, because when that is healed, then we can often affect how that condition manifests. And it led me to other things. You know, I've, I've written quite a few books and uh, developed some oracle cards over the time that I've been writing about shamanism, I did several books as a psychotherapist, self-help type books, but this is a whole different ballgame. And uh, up to the uh, latest book, which is Healing Ancestral Karma, I also did uh, uh, animal spirit guides, uh, two card decks, uh, messages from animal spirit guides, power animal cards, and of course the children's spirit animal cards, which are so delightful. And uh, also earth magic, and then... Uh, Healing Ancestral Karma, which I'm looking at here on my desk. Free yourself from unhealthy family patterns. So that's, a, that's in essence, that's how I uh, got to where, what I'm doing today. And now I teach. I do workshops. I do trainings, etc. And, uh, of course, continue my writing. As soon as I find some time to write, I expect to write, you know, another book, too. Uh, but as, as many people are, you know, my life is very busy, as many lives are busy these days. Anyway, so I love my work. I feel real blessed, and I, I'm, uh, I, you know, I'm not, not out to change the world. I really am not, but I, I do know that I affect people and I influence people in certain directions, or at least, at least prompt people to think and consider some of these ideas that may or may not be connected to shamanism, such as animal spirit guides. You know, you don't have to even be curious about shamanism to really get this idea that. Uh, animals come to us in ways that um, are representatives of the, you could say, the oversoul of a particular species. That hummingbird that flutters in front of my face. Well, it's a hummingbird that's kind of cute and all that, and it makes me smile. But perhaps there's something more going on. And that's, that's one of the realms that I explore. And then the other, like you mentioned, Lavendora, is the uh, healing ancestral karma. Fascinating stuff, isn't it? You said you enjoyed the book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The thing that got my attention was, on, on if you've got the book there, it's on page 25, and, and it's oh, called look. Earthbound Spirits. And I, I wish you'd you really comment on those ten reasons that spirits remain earthbound, if you would, because I know a lot of our listeners um, would like to know this information because a lot of this information I get um, weekly from, from my clients. So if you would just take the time to go through those ten reasons spirits remain earthbound, I think it would really help our audience. <clears throat> sure. And I, I would qualify it too, Levendor, saying by most, no, I'd say most of the time, an earthbound spirit really isn't um, dangerous or threatening. I think you probably have found that to be true too. They're, I like to think of them as misguided, you know, they, or, or not knowing 
like one of the first reasons is uh, of the ten that you mentioned is uh, they they don't realize they're dead. <laughs> I know that sounds weird in some ways, but maybe not to our audience, but to uh, kind of normal uh, people, it sounds kind of weird. They don't know they're dead. What do you mean? Of course, you're dead. When you're dead, you're dead. But as we know, uh, and I'm sure all your listeners can appreciate, that there's something else that goes on beyond the physical death. We could call that the soul or the soul body or uh, other terms, but that's one of the reasons is they're unaware of their own death. Sometimes um, that would be off. Let's say somebody dies very tragically in a car crash and there's really just moments when they go from life to death. That could be one cause for that um, soul to hang around. Another is unfinished business. Um, we still feel like we've got something else to do here. So that's a uh, second reason. I, I'm actually looking at the book right now. The third is to protect the loved one. And uh, some spirits have an incredible loyalty to those left behind. They continue to feel um, obligated in their human role as provider and protector. Uh, older brothers or sisters might want to still look after their younger siblings. Uh, number four would be guilt, uh, common with suicides. A spirit seeing the effect of their actions on loved ones may feel guilty about the choice they made. I came across a book a while back, and it was really interesting. I'm, forgive me, I don't remember the title exactly, but this fellow had had an experience, I believe it was a near-death experience, and what happened, he was taken to this one, you could say this one land in non-ordinary reality, and what he saw was that there were the uh, spirits, earthbound spirits that were um, following the embodied, uh, the physical, uh, the, the living, and they were apologizing, asking for forgiveness, and he realized through his teacher that was there that these are people that committed suicide. And as anyone who has experienced that in their lives where they've lost somebody through suicide, it, it's very, very devastating. You know, it, it, it's probably... Uh, you know, one of the worst things to deal with, you know, and especially if the suicide is something that a child uh, does. Uh, parents just don't know what to do with that, let alone losing a child. Another reason is obsessed with another living soul. Uh, somebody can't just can't let go of someone, whatever it may be. Um, for six, forced by another spirit. Uh, what the writer, and I, uh, this piece I do attribute it to, it's not my writing, it's from Karen Hollis in an article um, called Debunking Earthbound Spirits, When Spirits Stay Behind by Choice, Not Force. Anyway, forced by another spirit, this is not possible because every spirit has free will. What is possible is, is that another spirit who had control over the newly deceased is perceived to still have that power. For instance, a man who abused his wife in life but dies before her. If she believes in death, the ghost of her husband has control of her then that perception can hold her back from the light. Seven, not wanting to face someone who has already passed on. So just like when we don't want to see somebody who, in physical life, uh, we don't want to see somebody who's already deceased. Eight, uh, there's a strong belief that there's no such thing as life after death. So um, they, the earthbound spirit may just be, well, I'll hang around here because... You know, I don't know where else to go because <laughs> I don't have any set philosophy or, or belief system about that. Number nine, not understanding that their existence does not end. 
Some spirits realize they're dead and are in spirit form, but become fearful that leaving the earth plane will mean they cease to exist. And this was explored if um, uh, your listeners have seen the movie What Dreams May Come with Robin Williams. Uh, That's uh, portrayed in there. And number 10, fear judgment. If there's a place of light, there also must be a place of darkness. And uh, the earthbound spirit may think, well, if I really let go, I might go to the other place, you know, the place of darkness. So that's some of the reasons that Karen Hollis come in. I think, you know, you would agree, Lavender, I'm sure that uh, many, if not all, those reasons really are applicable in your your, uh, work as a medium. So that gives you some idea of uh, what can happen with an earthbound spirit. Um, The fascinating thing about ancestral karma, there's so many angles to it, as you know, having read the book. But one of the biggest revelations to me, and I was actually doing uh, workshops on this before I sat down and committed to writing the book. Uh, one of the most fascinating pieces is that, uh, not talking about earthbound spirits, but what happens when we die is that when we die, we aren't necessarily done. Meaning, you know, we're not ready to go into the light all the way or go to heaven or whatever you know, belief system you may have about that that in the afterlife, in the spirit world, you still have work to do. You still have some, you could call it your spiritual evolution. In addition to your human evolution, there's a spiritual evolution after you die. And um, when we do our healing, whatever it may be, as a descendant of an ancestor, there's a very interesting thing that happens, and that's that it helps heal the ancestor who has come before us with their uh, remaining woundedness so that they can move forward. There's a fascinating, uh, one of my students in my training, I just finished his training this last weekend, and we did this process where you identify a condition in yourself that you want healed, physical, emotional, mental, whatever it may be. And then through a process involving spiritual allies and guides, uh, an ancestor of the previous three generations, there's mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, great-grandma, great-grandpa on both sides. The spirit identifies that person in those ancestors who carried the same condition. And what we do is we send love and light. We, we basically help heal them so they can move on. And then they turn it around and send it back to us. And then we can send it on to our descendants so that whatever the particular condition is, they no longer have to suffer. A woman who was in my training did this exercise and she commented, she said, my healing was with my, um, was with my uh, father. And the interesting thing is that when I returned home to uh, my home state, uh, he was actually waiting there for me. Now, technically, that's not healing an ancestor, but there, it is healing a progenitor, somebody who's, who's gone before. So the healing that she did affected him in such a way that he, he wanted to be there for her when she arrived. Another woman wrote me after the very first workshop I did where I did this process, and she said, uh, Stephen, or Dr. Farmer, I, have a, I had a dream last night after the workshop I want to tell you about, and that's that I was walking through the forest, and I saw a campfire, and it looks like there were people around this campfire. So as the closer I got, I saw that these were all men. And the closer I got, even still, about 15, 20 feet away, I noticed that the man whose back was toward me 
was my grandfather who I'd worked with in the exercise. As I approached him, he turned to me in the dream. He turned to me and said, thank you. I can now sit in circle. So there's an abundance of healing, and that's, you know, that's what I am. I'm a healer and a teacher, and I, I, it's another avenue to go with um, not only healing ourselves, but being of service to our ancestors as well. That's very fascinating. You know, I was just thinking, my grandmother and I have the same birth date, December 5, and when hmm. she passed, I was so connected to her passing and to, you know, what was happening with her that uh, I really kind of think that our DNA was was responding. You know, there's some kind of frequency that happens in the blood. And yeah. I really felt like that that she was around and contacting me for, well, for about two or three years and would do all kinds of things to get my attention. And one of the things that kind of really, you know, set me down and had me staring at the wall was I, I went to open a box of hers from the nursing home and... Um, and she had actually uh, done a, what do you call it, uh, when they thread, what is that called? Um, um, it's a seam that you use with a with yarn. Um, anyway, embroidery? there's this embroidery? picture. Yeah, embroidery? That yeah, that was what, embroidery. It was a picture. It was a picture of the ocean and, and um, rocks and sand. And it was the identical place that I found in Aruba in 1980. Well, she died in 1979. She had never seen this place. I had never, I hadn't even found it. And and when I opened the box and I saw that she had had this with my name on it, it made me wonder how in the world what, had that happened? It's like she died in 79. I didn't even find this place till 80, and it's identical to the place. Yeah, I you know that's that kind of thing is just magical to me. Those are those are those miracles. <laughs> so, those and that miracles. was the place where I eventually took a lot of people to Aruba, buried them in the sand, had them take their power. I did a lot of solar return sessions from there, uh, and and I lived there for nine years, and I really spun the energy really high from this place. So I just wanted to to share that with you. I also noticed in the book that you had a wonderful um, few paragraphs about trees. So would you tell our, I know a lot of our audience, we love trees and we talk to trees, but the way that you wrote about it was really unique. So tell us how you feel about trees and, and the guidance that you would give to our listeners to identify with trees. Oh, I think you should cut them all down and make houses. What? I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay, it's a joke. Okay, it's a silly joke. I do that. Are you um, a Gemini? What, what sign are you? No, I'm. A, but Raven is my one of my power animals, so he's trickster. So that's probably it. Although I think I was trickster before Raven came to me. Okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> you know, bad joke. Okay, we'll let that go. Um, I just, uh, I just, as I said, I mentioned earlier, I finished a training, and that's a couple of the exercises we do in the training is uh, the people in the workshop or training more accurately because it's a nine month process. Uh, one of the assignments is that they go out and they sit by a tree with their journals and they lean their spine against the tree, take a few breaths, go into a meditative state and ask tree, notice I don't see a, I don't just say a tree, a or and or uh, and or the implies the physical being such as uh, a, a rabbit, <laughs> 
a uh, wolf. But when you say rabbit or wolf or tree versus a tree, you're talking about not just the physical tree, you're talking about tree spirit. And it's that essence that is shared by the entire species, you could say. So they would sit by the tree with their backbones up against their spine, up against the spine of the tree. And they would take a few breaths. That was the instructions. And then the request would be to tree spirit to teach me. And when I say uh, the assignment was to ask tree to teach them, just that, that it's open-ended. They, the tree or tree spirit, more accurately, could teach them anything they want to. Now, I had, a, uh, I, I had this experience in one of my trainings. I was at Esalen in uh, Central California near Big Sur. Beautiful, beautiful area. A two-week uh, training in advanced shamanism. And um, one of the assignments I got, and I got this from spirit, uh, from some of our shamanic journeys, I was told to go out by this one particular magnificent tree that was sitting or planted uh, just a few feet a few feet from the um, precipice that overlooked the ocean. You know, I, I'm guessing it was probably about um, oh, I'd say probably a good thousand feet up from the ocean itself, uh, as far as uh, above sea level. Anyway, um, I would go out to this tree. I was told to go out five days in a row make an offering of tobacco, sit by the tree, and the same assignment is um, ask tree to teach me whatever it wanted to teach me about, uh, about trees. After the third day, it was the fourth day I went to go sit down. And now the night before, I had twisted my back, and it was really sore, really painful. You know, we were dancing a lot. And that's how that happened. And I got out of bed that morning. And I went, oh, my God, my back is so sore. So that day, right around 12 noon before lunch, when I typically did this on this fourth day, I went out there, sat up against a tree, had my notebook nearby, my journal, and I had this thought. I said, you know what? Just for the heck of it, I'm going to ask Tree to heal my back. So I leaned my back, just like I, I described in uh, having, asking my students to do this or having my students to do this this weekend. I leaned my spine against the tree, and I took a few breaths just to get into that lower, that kind of light trance state that we can do in meditation. And I said, uh, tree, I ask you, please, please heal my back. You know, it's really, really sore. And then I just sat there. I didn't know other input. I didn't have any other exchanges with tree spirit or any other communication. And I must have been there probably about seven, eight minutes just breathing, meditating got up from the tree and I went, oh, oh, my back is still sore. Oh, well, it was worth a try. Didn't work. You know, walked away, went into the classroom. We did a, about an hour's worth of lecture, something like that. And on the break, when uh, Michael called for the break, he was teaching this one too. I got up to walk over and get some water, I think some snacks or water or something like that. And about 10, I took about 10 steps, uh, Lavendora, I took about 10 steps and um, I just went, oh my God, my back is completely healed. There was no pain, no tension at all. And uh, that's a miracle. That is a miracle. And it was also a great teaching that these beings that show up in the form of 
trees or plants or animals really have a lot to offer us, especially when we open our consciousness to the possibilities of something like this happening. And that's a big part of you know what I teach and I promote you know with the people that I come in contact with. So anyway, that's a little bit about trees and and oh man, they're such magnificent beings. I was just told in a meditation I did the other morning is make sure you honor the trees in your backyard. So I've been doing that every time I go out in the backyard. I acknowledge them. I say hello, how you doing? You know, and it's almost as if the tree, well, the trees. There's two huge trees out back. It's almost as if they bow to me and say, oh, we're doing okay. <laughs> I, get a, I get some kind of communication or a sense of their well-being, and, and they like being honored, too. Well, I just okay. I, I have all my life, since I was a child, had a special connection with communicating with trees. And, and a few years <laughs> back, we had a, a huge ice storm here. And it really, I mean, it was it was the the biggest ice storm we've had in several years in southwest Oklahoma, and and I could feel the trees as they were responding to this yeah. ice storm, and I thought I was going to have a nervous breakdown over it. It was like I was so tuned in to I the bet. vibration of the trees in my neighborhood that it that it physically affected me. I I believe I mean. Of course, I believe you. You know that, that was your experience. And and, and we you, were we were out of uh, electricity for eight days. And oh my God. yeah, so all I could feel was the trees. <laughs> you know, there was no TV, oh. there was no, you know, anything to distract me from the trees because that's all I could. That's all I could feel or hear for eight days. It was. Yeah. It was really something. I could you feel the suffering of the trees? Pardon me. Could you feel the trees suffering? Could you feel their suffering? It from the ice. Yes, I I felt them. It's like a paralysis that was happening to them, with that much ice on them. It's like Mm. they were encased in ice, and and their limbs were breaking. Yeah, it was it was it was it was very hard on me to 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 witness this with them. Yeah. I I bet I bet my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. I. I. Um. I. I guess the not. I guess, but the other thing about trees that fascinate me, as well as plants, in general, is um, the exchange with all of the other beings that breathe oxygen, including us. <laughs> you know that whenever we breathe in, in a sense, we're receiving a gift from the plant people and the tree people. That's right. When we when we exhale, we're giving back. And this principle of exchange, even in this simple example like this, is really an aspect of um, a way of life in indigenous communities, is the appreciation for the exchange, the attempt to give back as much as we receive from our mother, the earth. And unfortunately... (laughs) We are a forgetful species over generations, speaking of ancestors and going back, you know, a few hundred years at least. We've forgotten. You know, we have really forgotten that. We've we've been, as a species, attempting because of our, perhaps our consciousness, our self-reflective capacities, we've been able to sort of try to control the earth in a way, you know, divert rivers build dams, you know, all those kind of things that we've done to her body. Dig, you know, to find uh, 
whatever we're looking for, coal or something like that, dig into her body. We don't really, uh, we haven't really operated on that principle for centuries, perhaps even millennia. And what the, I think the good news, uh, Lavendora and Ariel, is that we're, I think we're starting to wake up to that. I often think think about this, which is maybe 30 years ago, we would still, I think, we still had that mentality, and I'm generalizing here, we had that mentality of looking at indigenous people as primitives. You know, they don't really know. You know, they really know they're primitives. But what I find fascinating over the last, oh, I'd say about 30 years or so, is we're going with our clipboards and our notebooks to indigenous people and saying, um, excuse me, can you teach us? How to live? How to live with the earth? You know, it's the difference between living with the earth versus living on the earth. Just that one word changes the whole perspective on that. Living with the earth versus living on it. And again, it's not nobody's fault. You know, we don't need to go around hanging our heads and go, "Oh my God, you know, it's terrible." My ancestors and me, and you know, all we can do is we can do our best. And one of the things I think is to is to continue to revise our relationship not only with the earth but with all of her beings all of her children and what i mean by that is that um we i am not one i'm not a proponent to say oh we're going to save the planet planet you know frankly doesn't need saving <laughs> planet's been around for four and a half billion years and probably got another five billion you know to go before it, whatever happens it explodes or something but in the meantime here we are on this one little place in time on the earth and what a beauty she is i have on uh, my computer i've got several screensavers of places i've been you know beautiful rivers trees forests clouds the stars you know jupiter blinking his eye at us at night you know grandmother moon on the full moon coming out i mean just the beauty of this earth is we 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 can sometimes miss that anyway i'm kind of ranting so forgive me for ranting i do that sometimes my point being, okay. my point being the other thing that I noticed about your book is how open you were about visiting your parents' grave. Would you mind oh. giving us a little um, a synopsis of what happened with you, with your mother and dad? Uh, uh, well, one one just short piece is uh, I'm from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and uh, where t- my father died about mid '90s, and um, this was still. Shamanism was still sort of integrating in, in my makeup and my being. But I went back there for his service and his funeral. And then after he was buried by myself, I went to the graveyard. And get this, this is the Midwest, okay? Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I went back there with my rattle. And I rattled while I was at his grave. You know, I'm looking over at people on the other grave sites. You know, and they're, I'm thinking they're probably thinking, oh, this guy must be from California or something. But anyway, I'm rattling. <laughs> And as I'm rattling, he came to me, and he gave me some very specific messages to give to my two brothers and sister, as well as my sister's husband. And it was really beautiful to go back and, and share these messages, very, very specific. Like he said to my sister, you know, I've loved you. He's really, she's really half-sister, had a different dad, but his message to her was, you know, I, lo- I have loved you as my own daughter, and I still love you. And she went, really? And she started crying. You know, she really got it. Message from the other side. The other piece, though, was um, one time visiting uh, my partner, Cindy, at that time. This is, again, back about mid-90s, somewhere in there. 
We went to visit her brother and sister-in-law in Portland, Oregon, planning to visit just for an evening and then go out camping that night. Well, I had never met she and neither had Cindy, but I'd never met um, Gary is his name, her brother. I'd never met Gary's wife, uh, Maria. And we got to chatting a little bit, and I found out she was psychic. And I went, well, you know, if you want, if you ever want to do a reading, I'm, I'm open to it. You know, I'm happy to pay for it or anything, but I'd love to have a reading. And she said, oh, I don't do readings anymore because my mother and grandmother, they had the gift too, but they misused it. You know, I worked with the dark forces. And I went, well, okay, that's fine. I understand. We chatted a little bit more. And finally she said, okay, if you want a reading, let's do it. So we went out in the backyard. And this most unexpected <laughs> and amazing thing happened is she drilled down somehow. She even, I, I remember how expressive she was about it. She started crying when she touched some deep pain that I had not uncovered or healed in some way in the relationship with my mother. My mother would, you know, she never really got me when I was growing up. And I I'm, was kind of a weird kid and I kept it to myself. So it's, it's not her fault. I've healed so much with her over the years. You know, we're all, we're all us, many, I'd say most of us healers, especially in spirituality and even therapy are wounded healers. You know, we worked on our own wounds. You have to, you've got to do that to be a healer. Anyway, so I was so stunned and overwhelmed with emotion that I couldn't feel it. You know, I was like, I, I got very numb. And it just that's what happens when you get overwhelmed. So we walked back in. I thanked her. I don't think I, I didn't thank her. I, I was so stunned. I don't even, couldn't say anything. Cindy walked in. Cindy goes, uh, she didn't say anything. She just looked at me and went, okay, she got it. She's pretty psychic herself. And we drove out. She drove. Thank God she drove. Um, about a half hour out of Portland. Unloaded the car to get set up for camping. I started writing in my journal. And I was just weeping from the experience. Just really mildly weeping. And then the miracle happened. Unexpectedly, my mother came to me. I did not see her. I didn't see her visually. But I heard her as if she were four feet away. And what she said is, Oh, now I see who you are. Now I see who you are. And then, of course, the dam burst. It's like being seen by, um, you know, it took her being in spirit world to see me, but she was able to see my gifts and who I was, my authentic self, you could say. And what a blessing that was. You know, I just cried and saw, I mean, sobbing, kind of crying, you know, that deep sobbing, can't catch your breath. It was just such a miracle to have her come to me in that unexpected way. And that's what happens. You know, Sonny Don Johnston, a friend who's a psychic medium, says we're all mediums to those we're closest to. Didn't didn't uh, your uh, mother die and then a few weeks later your dad died? Yeah, my pop, um, he made his trek. I wrote this article, my father's final trip. He uh, got her ashes and took them back to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Buried her ashes. They'd already had a plot. Got a, and get this, he got a, an apartment two blocks from the graveyard. He really missed her. They were married 40 plus years. And um, he came down with uh, pneumonia, went in the hospital and, and um, died of uh, delirium tremens. He was lifelong alcoholic, so they wasn't, he wasn't drinking anymore when he was in the hospital, and so he got the convulsions and died from the convulsions. 
And he has come to me also. He's come to me uh, many times. And Raven has taken me to the land of the ancestors in non-ordinary reality. And uh, I had never gone there before, and Raven took me there by surprise. I, I went, oh, okay, that's where you're taking me. Okay, and my father was there. He's, he's been really instrumental in taking care of my two children, my adult daughters, who now have their children, my grandchildren. And my oldest daughter, Nicole, I've said that to her on a couple of occasions. I say, you know your grandpa's with you. And she goes, I know. He's taking good care of me. <laughs> Isn't that cool? That is very cool. You know, one of the things I that I have experienced uh, in the last few years with some of my clients is that I've I've been able to track some of their bloodlines, and I find that there's several that choose to dive down every seventh lifetime in the same bloodline. Hmm. Does that come up for you anywhere where you choose well, not, to come not. back uh, in a bloodline and, uh, and and it's traceable? Not specifically that. Um, but what I, I have found, I, it's like I began to question this whole thing. I know this is sort of a heretic heresy, you know, in the New Age uh, realm. But I began to question whether there really was such a thing as past life memories, past lives or past life memories. And I've kind of I've settled that now. They're like, okay, whatever you want to believe, it's fine. But I, I started asking myself as I started looking at ancestors a little bit more and their influence, I started thinking, huh, I wonder if what we call past life memories are really ancestral memories, that they have come down the bloodline. It's a little different take on what you're asking, but that somehow that that um, their influence has come down the bloodline, let's say, like you said, seven generations later, and it's in our DNA, and somehow that gets awakened to where we have this memory, and we go, oh, man, I was a knight back in uh, uh, England, you know, in the 12th century. I you think know, there's some knows? validity of what you're saying. You know, I, I think that when you choose to dive back down into the bloodline, it makes it stronger memories for when you come back later to, to assess that. That's very interesting. I, I could, that would, that would make us, that would make sense. Well, one you know, of the things that I found, and I say this to a lot of my clients, uh, of course, I've been researching this 25, 26, 27 degrees and astrological as being star seeds. So, so, so what I say to some of my clients, I say, go to your graveyards, go to your, to, you know, track your ancestors and see how many of them were born between the 15th and the 20th of the month and see how many of them died between the 15th and the 20th of the month. Like That's something that I've been, I've been looking at because it seems to be a pattern of people that have evolutionary thought, like star seeds. Huh, interesting. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I was thinking, uh, a little divergent from what you're saying, but I was thinking about some of the research I did that uh, in the uh, old Hawaiian spirituality, that the ancestors actually do recycle. They recycle in the land. Uh, and the, the old, uh, the, um, I don't say the old Hawaiians, but Hawaiian in the old days. In Hawaii, the culture there was was also, um, what am I trying? I'm sorry, I'm stumbling over my words. The culture there and the, the spiritual belief was that as an ancestor, when you die, you go to this underworld, this, and it's not like hell or something like that. You go to this place called the Land of Po, and you hang out with the Akua, which are the big gods and goddesses. And then while you're there, you gather mana as, as, as a spirit. 
And then at some point when you're ready, you reemerge, you recycle back into the land. Uh, typically based on your um, bloodline, your lineage, that is where you share a certain animal or a certain plant or a certain rock in the physical environment. So the uh, Akua that have been in this land of Po, from which you've acquired mana or power, once you go back, and let's say in an animal, that you are now Amakua is what it's called, which is a sort of equivalent to a totem animal. And your Amakua then will be in service to the living in your lineage. So you watch out for them, your Amakua, your sort of intercessories, if you will. That makes a lot of sense. I also noticed in your book you talked about Australia and how how it affected you when you went to the the tribes there. Can you give us a little um, rundown on what you felt and how that came important to you? Yeah, you know, it was uh, it's similar to a uh, to Hawaii, the old religion and the old spiritual practices. But what I was going to say, just that last piece, was that the Amakua watch over the lineage. And if you live the aloha spirit, then blessings come to you. But if you're um, misguided, so to speak, while you're in physical form, they kind of do something to get you back in line as much as possible. So that's the belief system and the structure. Um, we have something similar in Samoan, which is, and I'll get to the Australian in a sec, but Samoan is so fascinating because I've got, you know, that's in my lineage, is the, the uh, Irish and English ancestry. And Samoan is a Celtic holiday that was really the high holy day that took place around October 31st. The main idea was that you set up an altar and you do some way of honoring the spirits, your your ancestral spirits, uh, during that particular evening because that, that evening the veil is the thinnest and they come and visit. They come and they go, oh, look at the, oh, look, at he, he set up an altar. Good, great thing. Oh, blessings to him. They are watched out for the next year. They're going to watch out for you just like in the Hawaiians. But this is like on this one day of the year when the veil is the thinnest, October 31st. And the deal, <laughs> the deal is this. If you don't honor them, then they might try to trick you. So if you don't offer them treats like their food and stuff like that on the altar, they will trick you. You hear what I'm going with this? <laughs> trick or treat. uh, It's a fascinating underpinning of of what's been called a pagan holiday, which, by the way, pagan uh, has become somewhat of a pejorative, but it really means country dweller. That's all it means. Look it up in the dictionary. So anyway, it's a pagan holiday, like it's some bad thing or devil worship, but it's not anything at all. It's just this is the old ways that have sort of been um, uh, imprinted on top of the uh, pagan celebrations with contemporary celebrations. For instance, uh, right around November 1, November 2 is All Saints Day and All Souls Day. It's planted on top of that. In Australia, back to your, uh, circling around to your question, Lavendora, uh, similar to Hawaii, the, uh, first off, the, the aboriginals still to some extent, but even at a greater extent, let's say two, three hundred years ago before Australia was colonized, they really, they had thousands, tens of thousands of years of experience living with the land. Such, in such a way that it's almost incomprehensible to us in Western civilization how intimate they were with the land. 
I I think I've just scraped the surface as far as understanding the way these people actually lived with the land. And that's the similar kind of ideas that the ancestors also lived in the land. There's a thing called song lines, and that is when Australian Aboriginals would do a walkabout, they had become so familiar with the, the mountains and the, the valleys and the deserts, etc., and the plants and the trees and everything, that these, all of these physical expressions were expressions of an ancestral spirit. And they would sing as they were walking, and in the song itself, it was a way of describing the different ancestors and the different artifacts of the land. We, again, uh, I believe part of the problem for us in Western, Western civilization is we're pretty dissociated from the land. What I mean by that is we have, you know, I've done this in works. I've said, okay, out of the hundred people that are here, how many live in the same place that, um, where they were raised? And depending on the area of the country, I might get, you know, one or two, maybe three people that say, yeah, I was, but it's very, very much the exception. So we've, we've, because of our mobility, again, nobody's fault, but it's just the way it's been. Because of our mobility, we don't become intimately associated with the land. So there's no way that we could evolve this sense that uh, Grandpa, who died last year, has now resurfaced or recycled in the form of this tree. We just It's so incomprehensible to us to imagine something like that and yet it's a strong belief system and i'm sure in other indigenous cultures too but the ones i'm most familiar with is the old older hawaiian spiritual practices as well as the australian aboriginal practices and again it's just something that we go shake our heads and go what what that doesn't make sense you know we if, if we if we die you know we go on to heaven or if we die we uh you know, go to the dark place, I guess, go to hell or you know, whatever. But if we die, something else happens. Our soul moves on, reincarnates, whatever your belief is. But what, what does that mean? It goes, you go back into the land. What does that mean? Anyway, it's kind of an interesting uh, difference in how we approach ancestral spirits. Uh, I love the way you've, you've written about it. I'm also uh, wanting to uh, take your attention to page 123 in the book. It's called The Dark Law. I have never wow. seen that written that way. The Dark Law. Uh, it's very, it really caught my attention, so would you please oh, yeah. uh, talk to us about the shadow side of the ego and, and the limits that we put on ourselves subconsciously? Well, this is, um, I attribute, uh, I give some credit to uh, Lazarus indirectly, and that's that my wife Jessica had um, listened extensively to a lot of the channeling by an entity named Lazarus. And uh, she described this, how uh, there is this dark law that comes from a core wound. A core wound is some mm, trauma that occurs typically in childhood, in fact, almost inevitably in childhood, that is so, so impactful that you develop a core belief around that. And that core belief becomes the dark law. If, for instance, um, if I'm shamed a lot, 
directly, indirectly, through emotional or physical or even sexual abuse, they, I may come to a conclusion being vulnerable as a child that, that, that nobody's ever going to love me. I'm just bad. Um, my dark law in growing up was formed by in an alcoholic family situation, my father being the identified alcoholic, uh, my mother being the co-alcoholic or codependent, as sometimes called. And I watched as my uh, next oldest brother, who's, uh, as I said, a half-brother, uh, two half-brothers and a half-sister, but I'm calling him my brother. My next oldest brother, seven years older than me, I watched him get into trouble time and time and time again. And as a result of that, he got a lot of attention. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I got, you know, I got plenty of attention. I didn't, it's not that I could get attention. But somewhere in observing this, and somewhere I had this memory in my brain of my mother being upset with him because he had lit uh, a field on fire. This is Iowa, remember. Uh, that he had, she had taken him under the bed with some matches and burned the tips of his fingers. Now, I, my father said, no, it didn't happen, you know, or you weren't even born then. With I don't know. Maybe it was a story, but somehow that planted itself in my brain, along with some other experiences. And I somehow came to this conclusion, okay, don't be a problem. And what that meant, you know, how it manifested was shyness, was not if I did something that I felt guilty about or shy, I, I tried to cover it, I didn't want to, you know, be like my brother to get in as much. Hello? Hello? It looks Where'd like you go? I don't know. Um, he's still on the switchboard. Stephen, we can't hear you. Uh, yeah, he just dropped. Well, it's, hopefully he'll call back in. <laughs> That's weird. Yeah. Mercury's, Mercury's gone direct, but it's not quite, I guess, all the way back up to speed. Well, well, I've got well, the, the, the second thing he was going to say was people can never be trusted. He was naming the, the dark laws. The next one, I'll be abandoned and left alone to fend for myself in the world and life is not worth living, those are things that subconsciously come under the dark law. It's a very interesting chapter. I had never heard of it uh, talked about the dark law, but that's, that's, that's very much an ancestral thing that can be passed through bloodlines or through memories or through, or through parents uh, that are living now, either way. Yeah. So yeah. And that, it's really just, that just really clicked in yeah. because, you know, as a child, uh, you know, there's been there's a lot of things that happen to kids that that aren't handled the right way, and um, and a, a child will draw a conclusion, and that does become the law and dark because it's not real. Yeah, right. Yeah, so that's yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I wonder if he knows that we were disconnected. <laughs> oh yes, he is. Here he is. He's back. Okay, hang on a second. I'm back. Even, <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. Just, well, you I know, just that's, yeah. Well, the the uh, the technology is pretty good most of the time, but not perfect. So yeah, sorry. Glad you called back in. Yeah. yeah so okay. Okay. 
I, I went ahead and, and read the, the rest of the, the things that you said about da- the dark law. Now tell us a okay. little bit about um, your website, how people can contact you, the things, some of the things. Now, you sent me the children's spirit animal cards, and they're wonderful. Tell us a little bit okay, about those spirit cards. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll comment a little bit about these. I'm looking at them now. I set some out just in case. Um, we, and I say we because Jessica really had a hand in this. You know, we have, uh, I have two stepdaughters, uh, 12 and 10, soon to be 13 and 11. And um, she is uh, has a real vested interest in children. Uh, she's done some service with children, some service work, etc. even before she had kids. Anyway, she, she contributed a great deal to this. It's I, It's gotten so many um, accolades from parent groups, etc. It's 24 cards with a guidebook that not only um, expresses, well, describes how parents can work with children with these cards. But, for instance, let me draw just a card. Let's see. I don't know if I should say this is for Lindora, but I, I won't even identify it as being for anyone in particular. I'll draw a card here. It's Fox. And there's this, um, what I wanted is to find an artist that depicted the animals, not not that they look too real, but also I didn't want them to be cartoonish. And good grief, we found the right, that manifested in Pamela Anzalotti. She's got some wonderful drawings. So Fox, there's an image of Fox, and then there's a little message at the bottom that says, in this instance, says, do secret favors for others. You go to the guidebook for older children, the children that can read, and they can read a little more extended reading as to what that means. Let's say a five-year-old or a six-year-old would pick this, and then as a parent, a grandparent, I can talk to the child about that. What does that mean? Well, it means like taking the newspaper and putting on a neighbor's porch, you know, leaving a flower for mommy, you know, something like that. Anyway, um, it's a wonderful piece, and I I highly recommend it. Um, I don't often fuse quite so strongly about some of the things I've been involved in creating. But with this one, I highly recommend it for parents and grandparents, roughly about 6 to 11. But even older kids enjoy them, and I know that younger kids do because my grandson, Desmond, uh, his mother, they don't live nearby, but his mother sent me a video when he was two and a half years old and still learning the language, and she was peeling off each card, and he would identify the animal in the card. And that's how they were used at that age. So they're really, it's a, it's, it's a really cool little um, gift you know, for children. And then gradually, you know, especially with parents who are understanding and, and interested in this sort of thing, uh, can, you can talk to the child about how an, you were saying this earlier. I think the newscaster was saying this about communicating with animals. And then you can take another step and talk about spirit animals, you know, as the child develops and gets older. It really is a, a, a cool way and really neat way to introduce children to those concepts or just simply to have fun with them, you know, not, not to make it some big heavy lesson, but to just have fun with them. So, well, I think um, they're beautiful. And Now, well, Pamela, does she, is she from uh, Cedar Rapids, Pamela? The Pamela illustrator? I, you know, quite honestly, I'm not sure where she is from. I don't think from Cedar Rapids. Okay. I don't, I don't, I didn't, uh, my publisher, um, Karen Stuth of Santiama, who's done a wonderful job in supporting this and marketing and, and getting it out to parent groups, uh, found uh, found her. 
and we saw some samples, and I said, that's exactly what I want. And, she, God, she did such a great job. Uh, it's it's anyway, absolutely yeah. marvelous. And, and I, I'm going to share this deck that you gave me with somebody that's young and precious and that will really enjoy them because I have no oh, children good. of my own. Oh, sweet. Yeah. At this time, I would like to uh, um, hand you over to Ariel, my co-host. She has the switchboard. Will you be willing to maybe talk to some people that want to call in and talk to you? Sure. Let me uh, comment on your question, and that's uh, how to get in touch with me. Okay. And that is uh, very, very simple through earthmagic.net, earthmagic.net, all run together, all sorts of stuff on there, free card readings and articles and you can sign up for a monthly newsletter. My schedule's there and all that. So go there. Yes. Okay, done. <laughs> okay. Well, we really enjoyed having you, and, and we would like to have you to come back at, at some future time. So anytime you have something that you want to share with uh, our audience, or even if you have a, a lecture or something coming up, we can put you on for five or ten minutes to tell the people that you know what you're doing. So I, I really honor your work and what you've been doing all these years, because now I think it's harvest time for you. Okay? This is oh, harvest. God bless you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Lavendora. So back to you, Ariel. Okay. Well, Stephen, this has just been fascinating, and uh, I'm just uh, I'm, I'm so with you on, on so much of what you said, especially about the, the trees, and I'm going to send you a, um, a song that I wrote for the trees. Um, oh great! But we okay. do ha- we do have some. Uh, uh, well, we did. Where where did she go? They've been they've been on hold for quite some time, waiting to ask you a question, uh-huh. and now have dropped off. So let me just put it out there again. Um, Doctor Farmer is ready to answer some questions or comments. Um, so if you are already on the switchboard, you just need to press one, so we know you want to come on the air. And if you're listening on the computer then you'll need to call in 917-889-8292, and then once you're in, press 1 so we know you want to come on the air. So we can just uh, chat for a few minutes and, and uh, give anyone time to get onto the switchboard if they happen to have a question. But um, when it comes to discovering, um, are you saying that, Everybody has a specific, um, like one animal totem, or do they have several? Well, there's um, uh, depending on the system. It's it's pretty basic, which is uh, the idea is pretty basic. An animal spirit guide, or something's called a spirit animal. Um, when an animal comes into your perception, when you perceive an animal in an unusual way or repeatedly. That's when we're talking about animal spirit guides. When I say um, unusual way, um, again, the hummingbird, you know, you might see a hummingbird flying around, but if that hummingbird comes and flies right in front of your face, then I would say that's unusual. I had a hawk fly into my office one time. That's unusual. I had a grasshopper that I've never seen a grasshopper since my childhood in in, uh, Iowa uh, hopped in to give me a message in a certain time. When those kind of things happen, uh, there's there's something more going on than just, oh, that's a cute little hummingbird or the fox that runs across your path in the forest. Oh, look, there's a fox. Yeah, there's that too. That's legit. But often I think when you start to open your consciousness to the fact that you have a relationship with spirit and not just 
it's not an etheric relationship, but a relationship with you could let me say consciousness, you know, with a capital C, not just spirit, but consciousness, that there's this collaboration that occurs in consciousness between you and the relationship with another being, such as an animal. And so when you draw that, attract that to you, it's a way of saying God has sent you that fox or that hummingbird to give you a message. Hummingbird might be saying to you, hey, lighten up, or might be saying, hey, you got to be a little more flexible. Or another possibility might be saying to you or communicating to you, hey, you've been, uh, you need a little more sweetness in your life. Uh, fox may be more about, hey, stay in the background a little more. You know, you don't need to be out front on this one, whatever project. Maybe you're thinking about something at that time. So uh, that's an animal spirit guide. And there's different ways that you can interpret that. One way is uh, ask the animal, close your eyes, take a deep breath and say, Fox, what is your message? And then pay attention to everything you see, hear, and feel after you've asked. Helmingbird, what's your message? Pay attention to whatever you see, hear, feel after you've asked. You know, of course, my books, Animal Spirit Guides and Tower Animal, um, the pocketbook of uh, spirit animals can give you some suggestions, but if you go to the source, that can be helpful. Um, another word that comes up a lot is totem animal. And I have two meanings for totem animal that might be very, they may vary from other uh, teachers and writers about this sort of thing, but here's my take on it, two different meanings. One is I'm looking right now at another altar in my office that has these figures, like there's raven, there's an elephant, there's snake, a snake, there's a turtle. I, I call them totems. You know, they're representatives, they're figures that will um, be of some of my favorite spirit animals. Then a third is power animals. Power animals... When I first came into this work, I thought that this was the domain of shamans and shamanic practitioners. Is every shaman or practice, shamanic practitioner has at least one or two power animals? And I realized, no, no, wait, wait, wait. Something I think it was the journeys I did or something on this that everybody's born with one, but we don't have that kind of support in our society to say, oh, hey, you know, um, little wolf, <laughs> you know, or or uh, two crows. That, that we don't have that way of uh, identifying that as um, somewhat equivalent to a guardian angel. So what happens after about age seven or eight, thereabouts, when our perception of the world, our uh, way of relating to the world uh, starts to shift, is um, they leave. The power animal leaves. Okay, no need to be here. I'm gone. But the good news about that is that they do come back, and especially as we see this, evolution in our human consciousness and relating more to the the land and the beings of the land that we're starting to see this more and more is that people are accepting they have a, a guardian spirit animal that you could call a power animal. And you may have more than one. You might have two. Uh, I myself, because of my work, uh, I'm not bragging or anything. It's just that this is how it's worked is I've got four different power animals, and each one has a different uh, function, if you will. Right, so yeah. that's, um, you know, that's about, that's power animals. The one that's fascinating, I think, and that most people can immediately relate to is animal spirit guides. Then it becomes a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, well, they're, they're just waiting to be asked. 
Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, Yeah, we invite them in and and, uh, we open our consciousness and our heart to that. I mean, there's guidance that's occurring all the time. We just sometimes don't pay attention to it, you know, or we don't know how to pay attention to it. And that's one means that I think is uh, really handy. It's also not just a physical animal. It could be a symbol of the animal. That could be a dream, like I dream, oh, I have a big dream about, uh, oh, yeah, I, I had a dream uh, one time, Mario, blew me away because it was a big dream. I woke up going, whoa, what was that? <laughs> it was a dream about a salamander. That's a, that's like a big lizard, basically. And I oh, went, yeah. what? I'm going, I'm really puzzling, but I don't think about salamanders. How did that come? Well, it was an animal spirit guide. So I spent some time just meditating, and I checked uh, my book to see what it meant. And it was really, really appropriate. It was um, one piece I recall, it's been a while, but I recall was about um, there's a shift in your consciousness that's occurring and also a shift in your work, you know, that it's going to expand even more, something like that. But the point being, it was really, really pertinent and relevant at the time. Well, yeah, I think, I think if if people had a, a basic understanding about the um, various, I mean, Native Americans call it animal medicines. Yeah, it, it's 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 right there every day, all the time. Um, but you know, with our three D lives, most people don't really stop to pay attention. You know, so about, true. You know, and like you said, when an animal enters your your perception in an unusual way. I mean, obviously, if you go out, you're going to see some dogs and cats and birds and things like that. But, yeah, when they fly right up in your face or, you know, right in front of your windshield, um, or, you know, they come in your house in the insect world, you know, that's, there's, there's often useful information. You know? And yeah, like you said, I sometimes would, uh... it's, just, it's just what it is. But, but very often, for me anyway, it's relevant to whatever I was thinking or feeling at the moment, you know, and then I, I see a bunch of ants telling me to be patient, you know, yeah, just, there, just be patient, you know. Be patient, yes. Um, uh-huh. I had a, an experience, Ariel, at one time, and that's that I'm a, well, I'll confess, I'm a wannabe rock and roll star. You know, I, <laughs> I've been in bands before and I've done performances before, and I've written quite a few songs, actually. I've probably got about 40 songs I've written, some of which I recorded under a pseudonym. Uh, it's on iTunes and uh, Spotify and all that. It's called Doc Steven, D-O-C Steven. <laughs> kind of fun. Um, well, interesting. But back when I was getting ready to do, uh, I'd, done, I'd done some recording many, you know, a few decades ago. Then, but it was at a studio where people would, the old old school studio, you know, where somebody else would do the actual recording. And uh, what I wanted to do is, as my songwriting continued to blossom, if you will, and I'd written a number of songs, I wanted to record them. And I was living in Hawaii at the time, and my office was this separate Ohana uh, building. It was a small, you know, 16 by 20 office and had sliding glass doors on it and I was sitting there um, I had just contacted a recording studio and I was to go in to record for my songs the next day 
And as I was sitting there contemplating this and trying to figure out what songs and all that, I started to get uh, buyer's remorse, you know, second thoughts, doubts, going, hmm. Or, you know, that voice of the ego, you know, who are you to record your songs? You know, your voice isn't that good. Your guitar playing's adequate. But it's not. So what are you doing this for? Why don't you just call and cancel and be okay? Not a big deal, you know. I just, cha da 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 You know, and I'm going to go, maybe I should, you know, mostly fear. It was out of fear. You know, oh, gosh, it won't sound right or something. Anyway, get this. Out of the nowhere, and I mentioned this earlier, this is when this happened. This huge, now I'm in Hawaii, and they grow insects there, tend to be about twice the size of ones around here. Out of nowhere, I had the sliding glass door open, this huge grasshopper leaped in, and right on the right side of my computer, I remember, I could see it to this day, the memory. And I swear that grasshopper looked at me <laughs> with all whatever they have, 150 eyes or something like that. <laughs> looked at me, and I thought, oh my God, okay, I think this might be a message. I would call that unusual. <laughs> so let's start yeah. with that premise. So the first thing I did is I thought, well, first, and this is what people can do, too, with animal spirit guides, is think, what are the characteristics of this animal? You know, to the best of my understanding. Well, it occurred to me, first off, that the animal leaped into the office. So I interpreted that as leap to it. In other words, go for it. Go ahead and Then I got it. curious. So I started, uh, I actually uh, looked in my animal spirit guide's book for grasshopper, and it wasn't there. <laughs> How's that? I went, mm-hmm. Okay. It's now, it is now in the condensed version of Animal Spirit Guide. It's called Pocket Guide to Spirit Animals. I had to include grasshopper after that. But anyway, at that time, it wasn't there. So I thought, okay, this is also what I tell people. Well, you've got this Internet, right, in your computer. You can access the Internet. So put down, you know, grasshopper totem, grasshopper power animal, grasshoppers. So I did that very thing. And one of the sites I came to, I read very carefully. And I looked and I went, oh, about three lines down on this one site was the uh, sentence that said male grasshoppers often sing to attract their mates. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, I wasn't interested in attracting a mate since I was married at the time, but the word sing came, jumped out at me and said, okay, this is it. That's a message for me to go ahead and follow through with it and record the songs I went in there and I spent, oh, I don't know, five, six hours with this fellow who recorded and very pleased with the results. You know, it came out really nicely. Um, four songs that, um, gosh, they're still on my computer somewhere. Wow. So anyway, that's an example of an animal spirit guide and how you can follow through with it. Well, that's just fascinating. Well, uh, apparently we have had two people with, with questions that were kind of uh, – waiting and waiting and waiting, and apparently um, they have um, disconnected. So we don't have any questions or callers with questions for you this evening. But oh, that's, that's okay. I so that's enjoyed, so enjoyed chatting with you. And, um, you know, I, maybe, Lavender, maybe you could help me remember the details, but I know that, oh, it was that girl from Germany who um, transmuted some family ancestral trauma and when she got home her grandmother told her how this feeling just lifted from her is that kind of how it went Lavendar? 
Oh, she must have her phone on mute. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, it was some, something along those lines. And it, it really, I was thinking about that when you were talking about, um, you know, the the ancestral healing. Uh, but yeah, that was she was amazing when she transmuted her her wound, her <clears throat> her pain, which was a family thing. When she got back to Germany, her grandmother was different, better. Yeah. So it's yeah, amazing. so it really it goes in both directions. It does, and I've also had uh, do a process uh, in the longer workshops of three hours or more, where um, two two people work together, they pair up, and one person does the work. You know, partner A does the work, and partner B is really just basically compassionate, uh, the compassionate listener. And um, the work is to uh, bring up an ancestor, male or female, and that could be mom, dad, grandma, grandpa. And in this exercise, it could be somebody still alive. It's possible since they aren't technically an ancestor if they're still alive, but it, it can still work this way. And um, what you do is you say the word or the words to this person, I forgive you for. I generally guide them and I say, start there, I forgive you for, and then finish that. And repeat that line, I forgive you for this, I forgive you for that, as much as you can, and see how you feel, though, don't rush through it. You know, see how you feel when you say it. And my opinion is, sometimes the this thing about forgiveness is overstated. In other words, if you're not ready to forgive, you're not ready. Don't Don't rush it. You know, sometimes it takes certain sequence of things for that to really come to that place. And the other the other thing is like the story I told about my mother coming through from the afterlife. You know, that was a that was a real forgiveness, but I didn't I didn't think of it in terms of forgiveness. It was just a a way of understanding her, you know, much more um much more deeply. So, um after the person A does this, Person B, who's the listener, is just that. They don't comment. They don't problem solve. They don't try to soothe, make the person feel better. Sometimes can really bring up some emotion quite often in the, the one presenting, person A. So then we flip it, uh, and then person B goes, and they do the same thing. They let, they let their partner know who, who the uh, partner is role-playing and go through this, I forgive you for this, I forgive you for that. And then we come back to partner A again, and what they do is they say with, again, their partner just listening, I forgive myself for. (laughs) Woo, that one takes a, you know, that one uncorks people, to put it. Because when you're in the mode of this, and you've also been doing a lot of preparation because we've talked about ancestors and ancestral healing, is to really allow that because it, you know, a lot of times it comes down to that. I forgive myself for being a, a less than ideal, a less than ideal husband, or a less than ideal wife. I forgive myself for um, my my temper, and um, I forgive myself for losing my temper and calling my partner names. I forgive myself for, for yelling at my child. You know, any, any number of things can, you, you know, whatever is real to that person 
And it really is a release. It was amazing. I, we ran out of Kleenex on that one. And the last workshop I did with about <laughs> 60 people. You know, it really does bring up a lot of emotion, like I say. So that's, that's another angle, too, is really letting go of this stuff so that, again, not only for you, but for your ancestors and ultimately for your descendants so they don't have to carry all this stuff along. Yeah, well, I guess the buck stops here, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. You, you know, um, and it's a conscious choice, isn't it? Yeah, you know, you got to make that choice. I mean, I was talking to somebody I was a client earlier, just and it doesn't matter the details, but she was rather morose and she's making some major life changes and moving out of her house and you know all this, and um, that. I know this has been said before in many, many ways, but just as a reminder that, you know, you're alive now. We were talking about worry and how I was sharing with sometimes I worry. I, I have a very large puppy dog who's about a year and a half old, and I hadn't had a dog for like 30-some years. You know, it's been a long time, and I've had um, labs or some version of lab. Um, oh, gosh, I've had three or four different labs. But there was one, one of the, the very last one I had, I had to put to sleep at a very young age, about three years old, because of a um, catastrophic illness that he, had, he was experiencing. And I made that choice to uh, euthanize him. And I, I didn't know how to deal with it, you know, being a macho dude, a 20-year-old football player and all this, and not having anything near the consciousness I have now. But I know uh, his name is Samson, this dog here. But when we first got him as a puppy, I would sometimes sit looking at him, and I would just go into fear. And it was about worrying, um, you know, worrying. Oh God, he's going to die someday, and I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to be there because I'm committed to that, you know, to walk with him all the way, no matter what. I'm really committed. And um, Jessica, my wife, would just sometimes I tell her that she go, Oh, come on, stop it. <laughs> you know, he's alive now. You know, let it go. And I would go, okay, okay. And then I'd be okay for a while, and then it'd come up again, you know, something else. But anyway, I, I don't even know I'm telling you that story, except that the, um, you know, the uh, the worry doesn't do any good. It really doesn't. Somebody once said, worry is for those of us who think that we're in control. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to, you know, we're not. Simple, simple ideas yeah. that we're not in control. Well, <clears throat> you know, I... I've been in those shoes that you just described with a, actually with a black lab and uh, you know, the, the worrying and the apprehension and he's getting older. Yeah. I just finally, I was like, you know what? I will deal with it when it happens, but I'm not going to ruin or, or, or taint the present with unsubstantiated, um, you know, fears like that. So I just let it go. Right. And uh, yeah, uh, but that yeah, you can stop yourself again. It's a matter of consciousness. When you see what you're doing, and you yeah. say, "Wait a minute, is this serving me or not?" So um, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. enjoy uh, <laughs> enjoy every minute, and and there will be no regrets. Yeah, it's um, yeah. you know, it's again, we're not in control. It's that, That's right. It's that That's right. We can have influence. We can certainly affect one another, no matter. You know, you walk into a room, you affect the room. 
you know, whoever's in the room and whatever the environment is. I go into this uh, quite extensively in the book Healing Ancestral Karma, but it's basically that we do, we cannot not affect our environment just by our mere presence. And it's how do I want to affect my environment? <laughs> that's really what it, right. in a sense, that's right. what it's down to. Yeah, with with deliberate uh, creation or just, uh, you know, random wondering, uh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I want to, uh, well, this is just. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> it's like this is no, a delight of speaking about, with you. Before yeah. Show, before the show, I was thinking about in the book Earth Magic, Ancient Shamanic Wisdom for Healing Yourself, Others, and the Planet. And this piece right in the front really spoke to me and said, you know, somewhere in the show, I want to, I just want to read this. And it's a poem by Wendell Berry, who's actually a farmer um, and a poet, obviously. And here's the poem. The Peace of Wild Things is what he calls it. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world, and then free. I don't know about you, but I love that. Oh. You know, it's like the, the yeah. moments when we feel uh, sad or in despair, like he says, in grief, or worried, like we were just talking about is to get outdoors and go sit under the stars or take a walk in the woods or go by a lake. You know, somehow touch that, touch that wildness. I have a statement up here on, on, uh, right near my, uh, in my office near my computer, and it's um, Henry Thoreau that we've all heard about, you know, in the 1850s. And he said it, well, he said, in wildness is the preservation of the world. And yet again, we, uh, those of us who think we're civilized, you know, don't, we don't remember or recall or acknowledge that there is this very wild um, part of us that sort of lives in the jungle, if you will. Mm-hmm. And if you ever doubt that you, you, have, that you don't have that wild part of you and that instinctual part of you, drive on, a, uh, drive on the L.A. Los Angeles freeways. <laughs> <laughs> and and when, somebody, when somebody cuts you off, how do you feel? You know, there's that uh, that rise of the, the jungle man or the jungle woman that wants to, you know, slam their car. I want to slam my car into that person, you know, but uh, there's an yeah. override on that. that says, oh, no, we must not do that. And uh, thank God, you know. But there is that wild part of us, that instinctual part of us that... Um, yeah, I think it's important to recognize that's an aspect, too, of our humanness, and we don't need to bypass it. I think it's acknowledged that's there. Like we talked about shadows, touched on it briefly about shadows. It's often a shadow, and the reason it's in shadow, as Carl Jung called it, is because we it's been shamed out of us in some way or told that that's not allowed or 
that that's not permissible. So we put it, you know, into a, a basket, you know, a, a bag that we drag behind us, you know, different parts of ourselves. Robert Bly said it well. He said that we spend the first um, 35 years or so of our life putting parts of ourselves in this long bag we drag behind us, and then we spend the next, the rest of our lives pulling out these different aspects from the bag and saying, oh, yeah, and this too, and this too, and this too. Like learning to love the shy little kid in me. Mm-hmm. You know, it took, it took a while to really accept him, you know, once I kind of thought I'd grown, outgrown him in some way. But, you know, he's still there. He just not doesn't dominate, but he's still there. Well, this has just been delightful speaking with you this evening, and I want to just recap a little bit before we wrap up. Your website is earthmagic.net, and your latest book, Healing Ancestral Karma, gets uh, two thumbs up from Lavendar. And certainly, um, if you have children, um, the the children's spirit animal stories and cards, check out um, everything that Stephen has on his website and as well as uh, private sessions and consultations that can be arranged um, through your website. So um, this has just been wonderful, and I am going to send you. Um, I'm going to send you a, a uh, my my song called Mother Nature's Crying, and I think I think you'll really I think you'll really enjoy it. At least I hope you will. Oh, I'm sure I will. I'm sure I will. And, you know, when you have, uh, like Lavendar said, if you have some appearance that you want to announce, you can come back and, you know, just do a stop by. Or if you have a new book that you that you come out with, let us know because we'd love to have you back. Well, thanks. And I might, might as well give a plug for I'll be in Seattle here in about a week and a half. And, again, the information's on the website. And I'll be doing a workshop on healing ancestral karma as well as private sessions. And then something very exciting is uh, uh, myself and a colleague, Jeanette Downs, we're going to be doing a, uh, a river trip retreat on the Rogue River in Oregon. So, again, I re- check that out on the website anyway. Those are the next two events that are coming up that are booked. And thank Great. you yeah, again have- for your invitation. Well, I will do. I'll pop in, you know, for five minutes and say, hey, come see me at so-and-so. Yeah. Yeah, well, we'd be happy to do that. All right. Thank you, Ariel. Well, you are so welcome, and we so appreciate the the time and um, heart that you have shared with our audience. So um, for now, we are going to thank everyone for listening. Thank you to Vanya and Tammy for handling the switchboard. And until next week, when we come back next Tuesday, do remember to count your blessings every day. Until next week, take care. Bye-bye, everyone. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. 